Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Everyday Theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or why to believe it, but rather explore our Christian beliefs and why they matter for us in relation to God, to creation, and to others. My name is Aaron Ross. Welcome back to Everyday Theology. With me is uh, a very special guest, you can say is it Dr. Reverend or Reverend Doctor? I never know which one goes first. Normally, Reverend Doctor is what I've heard. So kind of the ecclesial comes first. I like it. Reverend Doctor Amy Peeler, <laughs> uh, who is an associate professor of New Testament at Wheaton, Wheaton College, and has just written and released, I think back in October, uh, not just written in October, but released in October, <laughs> the book Women and the Gender of God. And I am very excited for this conversation. I have an early confession to make. I have not yet read it. Um, That's fine. <laughs> you know, I just, I've, I've explained to other guests, I'm like, look, I just finished my dissertation. I am, oh, I haven't picked up a book. Of course. So I'm, I will transition in a little bit and start picking up books again, but I will. Absolutely. But I'm super excited because I've, I've seen a lot of people I trust talk about your book a lot of people, it's, it's kind of spurned on a lot of conversations, a lot of really important conversations. So I'm excited that we're going to be talking about what that means today. Before we dive into that, though, would you mind introducing yourself, letting my listeners get to know a little bit about you, whatever you feel like you just want to share? We're happy to hear. Sure. Excellent. Well, I'm really glad to be a part of this conversation. And yes, you should be reading for your dissertation and then you can take up other things. So that's the right thing to do. Well, I'm just in that break. That, like, okay, you know, okay. I'm in that little break moment where I just needed to decompress. Exactly, exactly. That's important. <laughs> Uh, well, uh, so I am here at Wheaton. I've been here 11 years. I did a postdoc at Indiana Wesleyan, which was a fantastic experience with the John Wesley Honors College, and did my graduate work at Princeton Seminary, both my mm -hmm. MDiv and PhD, and did my undergrad at Oklahoma Baptist University. So I have a good rootedness in Christian liberal arts, and then I had a great experience at Princeton yeah. and then on. So kind of uh, teaching undergrads about scripture, how to love scripture the tools to study. This is what I've wanted to do since I was a junior in college when I huh. discovered biblical studies. And the fact that I get to do it each day is just a gift. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, the yeah. reverend part was, uh, if you would have said that aspect of my life to me when I was in college, I would have had no idea what you were talking about. That was not on my <laughs> radar. 
Um, I grew up Southern Baptist. I had really good biblical training, some wonderful pastors, great youth pastor, but did not see myself in ministry. Uh, that didn't even occur to me as a possibility until the very end of my PhD. I was in my late 20s when hmm. I started really thinking about the possibility of using gifts that I was discovering in the classroom. Could I also share those gifts in the church? And it was when we left graduate school and and went to um, Marion, Indiana, stumbled into a very faithful Episcopal church that that priest allowed me to start wrestling with those questions. And mm. then five years later, I was ordained and have served in the parish where I'm at now for the same amount of time. I've been at Wheaton for 11 years, and I love those people and the chance to preach and administer the Eucharist. It, it's a wonderful balance to my academic life. They all work together as a real whole for me. That's wonderful and a great transition, although I was about to make a John Piper joke and say, so what you're saying is women can be pastors and professors. Um, you know, I've come to that decision after much exegetical <laughs> wrestling, and I would be happy to show my receipts to anyone who's interested. <laughs> well, I think from what I do know about your book, there are some receipts in the book, right? Even though that's not the topic, right? Right. Um but there's much to be said about this idea. And, and we've had some guests in the past that have talked about it. And for me, it's it's one of those things that's worth bringing back up again, because mm -hmm. it, it seems as much as people are talking about it, uh, more than probably 10, 15, 20 years ago, it's one of those topics that, that there's hard lines mm -hmm. drawn in some areas where it, it just feels like good research doesn't matter the biases are there, right? Mm -hmm. right? And maybe I'm wrong, but this is just kind of my own perception, I think, in some of these right. conversations with certain denominations and groupings of people. Mm -hmm. So my question to start is just for you on this kind of topic, when we're talking about the gender of God, yeah. we're talking about, particularly in light of, of, of womanhood, mm -hmm. what brought you to mm -hmm. the point of going, I feel like I've got something I want to say, or I want to <laughs> research, or I want to kind of add to the conversation in this topic of is God male, female, or something other, right? Right, right. No, that's a wonderful way to put the question. Um, this was a bowl, this was a book that took some bravery on my part. I am a very non-confrontational kind of person. I think most people are, right? And so I'm not, I'm not an iconoclast. I'm not a prophet. I don't kind of seek to stir up trouble. But as these ideas were developing, and this research really for me started in earnest in my dissertation, which I defended in 2011. So it's been a decade plus mm. of me wrestling with these topics and encouragement to those writers and scholars who take some time with things. Mm. Um, That's me. Right. You know, and I think actually there's some goodness in letting ideas marinate, or at least I, I needed that. So... I had written on the family of God in Hebrews, uh, primarily father language, son language, and I was finding such richness in that text with that theme. But I had also been exposed to feminist theology and critiques by by all feminist, womanist, mirarista of, you know, this language has some problems. Mm -hmm. And I thought in some aspects they were correct. And so really the initial question for this work was, how do I really listen to these critiques that are legitimate and yet also 
bring forth what I think is the richness and even the affirmation of women that I find in scripture. And, and again, my focus on, in the New Testament. So that was kind of the burning issue of putting those things together. And it really, over the next decade, I taught classes on feminist theology. I was writing on the intersection of these things and it was unfolding over time. The decision then to really write a book that will push some buttons, I think, or at least demand that people ask some hard questions, uh, really was also stirred up by the kind of continual uh, both in the news and in my personal life, not me personally, but meeting people who say, you know, Christianity hasn't been great for women. <laughs> uh, me hmm, to yeah. church to all the controversies. And so often I interact with students who say, you know, I, I, I love God. Like I know God is good, but my experience in the church has been horrific. And I think just by virtue of who I am and where I sit, I'm exposed to those stories quite a lot. And it yeah. seemed to me that it wasn't sufficient to say that there's this old idea that women are kind of second class that's pervaded. I thought the issue was something deeper. I thought it was really, and this is, I think this is true most of the time, when there's an anthropological problem, it usually has a theological root. Yeah. Our picture of God is off. Yeah somehow. And then that manifests in the mistreatment of certain people groups. And in the gendered language for God, which is so pervasive in our texts and traditions that God is Father, Son, Lord, He, I thought there's something there that scripture gives us that I think is ultimately good, but it's been joined to incorrect assumptions. Yeah. So really, that is largely what the book is. Like, can we affirm no, let me put this differently. How do we rightly discover the valuing that is a part of Christian faith, not only by Imago Dei and Genesis, but also in the incarnation? Hmm. How do we bring that forward in the light of all of these failures uh, throughout the history of the church? Yeah. And at least in my own life, sitting with these texts, studying this history, I have felt deeply in, encouraged, like strengthened that God is for all people. And that includes women. Uh, I mean, yeah. I, I, I want to write good for everyone, men and women and everyone who might be struggling to find their own gender identity. But my specific focus is really here to speak to women. And, and I hope I've been yeah. able to offer something that's an encouragement. Well, I think it's maybe, and, and this is just me thinking about your approach, you know, often especially, and, and maybe you can get into this a little bit, but mm -hmm. that those, sometimes the feminist or womanist critiques can, can come from a fundamentalist reaction to fundamentalist, oh, right? right. And, and we talk yes. about that quite a bit in, mm -hmm. in the podcast, actually, just because mm -hmm. it's a framework that I think is helpful. Yes. You know, deconstructionists can often come from the same fundamentalist framework mm -hmm. as those who are, you know, very solidly fundamentalist. Mm -hmm. And and so sometimes we have a hard time hearing the critiques mm -hmm. from feminist or womanists mm -hmm. because that critique can often feel like throwing the baby out with the bathwater in some kind of fundamentalist framework versus a, we don't have to throw the baby out, right. but this bathwater really stinks yes. and we've got to get something better in here, which sounds kind of more like your approach to, mm -hmm. we're not having to throw out this language about, you know, he and father 
uh, or son, but maybe there's that's that's good, and we've got to figure out the better way of talking about some of these things that we've missed, right? Exactly. No, that's really well said. And I think, you know, the, the spectrum of uh, scholars who are critical against Christianity is so broad. You're, you're exactly yeah. right. There are some who just are angry and I think they're rightfully angry, but yet very reactionary in the literature. And yeah. then there's kind of more right. nuance and, and more, um, you know, open-handedness, graciousness. So kind of reading as widely as possible on that whole spectrum. Um, th that was really helpful to know that I could, and I was really taught well in college, I can identify as a feminist. I'm very happy to do so, but let me then explain what I mean by that. That is not all the yeah. baggage of the whole spectrum. Um, right. And, and I think that's also important. I, I've said this in a few other places, and I really believe that for me, it was true. Liberal arts education like being freed to read everything, to not be afraid of reading anything. Like I may not agree with it, mm. but I can read it. Yeah. And to see the image of God and all authors to read with graciousness and civility. These are the kind of skills that I was handed as a very young scholar and I've seen demonstrated in my mentors. And so I think I can, I, I, there were periods of time on my sabbatical in particular, which I was reading, you know, every day, this literature, that it was heavy. There was a burden of listening mm. to these voices of women who said, this whole system is awful. And I knew I didn't agree, but I knew I needed to listen carefully because they at times will name things with an honesty that people yeah. like myself, right. as I'm within the fold, I might be hesitant to say as clearly. And I knew that if I could offer some kind of response to those really frank uh, uh, critiques, those raising of real potential problems in the Christian faith, then I would really have something to yeah. contribute. I know I don't quite imagine that a post-Christian feminist is going to pick up my book. I, I don't know that that's my audience. I mean, if they do, awesome. But right. I can't, I think my kind of commitment to a doctrine, particular doctrine of scripture, um, you know, creedal Christian faith probably would be a deal breaker maybe. Yeah. Uh, but I would hope that they would see their own position articulated correctly. Yeah. And with respect. Now, I, I want to get into those main ideas from the text, but I do think something that you did say, maybe we can kind of go down the path a little bit. When you say that you identify as a feminist, I, I, I can, the red flags I know, again, because of my background where I've kind of taught and, you know, there are so many people whose pumps were primed that that term equals bad or, okay. right, those those post, those post post-Christian feminists that you mentioned, right? Like, or the other idea of like a, a militant atheist, right. it's a militant feminist, right? Like mm. that's all that that some have ever been given with that right. term. Right. So mm -hmm. maybe kind of just explain what does that mean for you to mm -hmm. say you can be a feminist without being the militant feminist or the post-Christian feminist or the one that wants to just throw out all language. Right. Uh, and that, yeah, that's actually a helpful reminder for me. Um, because I wear that label fairly casually, but I need to be reminded that it might kind of set off some some mm. real red flags yeah. for people. Um, and again, I go back to a professor that I had. Uh, I had both an English and a history professor in a Western Civ class as a sophomore. It was a long time ago now. And we talked about the movement of 
thought through time. And feminism was defined for us with the simple statement, women are human too. <laughs> we were kind of taught <laughs> right. not to fear this. And as we studied first and a little bit of second, and then I really did some in my first postdoc, I, I taught a class on the movements of feminism. And that's where I learned all of this. Yeah. Um, just the affirmation that so often in the history of uh, Western philosophical thought, really going back to Aristotle, women were not viewed as human. Yeah, and right. you can see this, in fact, even the the fathers of the church at times, like I think they're confused because they have these women that they see as exemplary in the faith, but yet they have this Aristotelian kind of biological system that if women are weaker and smaller in body, they must be weaker and smaller in mind mm. and in virtue. Um, and that is really pervasive for a very long time into yeah. the laws of our own country. So for me, feminism is actually a return to uh, what God gives us in the creation narrative. Uh, this profound statement that men and women, all human people bear the stamp of the image of God. So that's what I mean by feminism. Yeah. And then seeing that played out in a beautiful ways, always in the church, maybe sometimes as a minority voice, but the threads are there of interpreters, faithful people, even the Pentecostal tradition in, in many ways. I, I love how they approach these questions and they're like, well, the spirit fell upon sons and daughters. I don't know what the rest of your problem right. is, but <laughs> right. kind of right. settled that in the early, at the beginning of their movement. So uh, learning from those and in my own kind of spaces, evangelical feminism, the literature maybe of the 80s and the 90s, just means, yeah, we have a high doctrine of scripture. And when we turn to scripture, we see this robust affirmation of the image of God of women throughout the text. Now, are there texts right. of terror as Phyllis Tribble so beautifully articulates in her book? Yeah. And we have to be honest and wrestle with those. But in the wrestling that I've done with the passages that, that I've covered, and really this book is focused largely on the gospels, the story of Mary, there's a lot of really terrible things said about the implications of Mary's story. I face those head on and I've discovered for myself that they're not true. I found in her story a profoundly influential valuing of women really at the center of the Christian narrative. Yeah. And then I think that plays out uh, in many ways in the epistles as well. Yeah. And I want to, that is what I want to talk about. I mean, mm -hmm. we're going to get there. I, I want to kind of point out maybe in some ways that for some, they've never really heard that being a feminist isn't defined by what you're against right. as much as a recognition of what that term and that group of people in certain spaces are for, oh, I love which that. is a vastly yeah. different thing. Yes. But we often take these labels as, oh, they're against this or they're against mm -hmm. that or they're right. And so we define people what they're against rather than yes. defining them what, for what they're for. Um, and, and to your point, right, I think some, something I was researching, and, I, and I'm, I'm forgetting the name, but, you know, this 18th century British philosopher who uh -huh. was, was the person who basically kind of made this claim that logic, there's a there's the upper tier of the human life that's logic, and then there's right. the lower tier that's emotion, Yes. right? And we still see that play out today right. with, uh, right. you think of presidential candidates. Do you yes. really want a woman who's just going to press the big red button at any moment because <laughs> she's emotional, emotional one day? Exactly. Like, as if like women have emotions and men mm. don't, yes. right? Like it, yes. it has this, because there's this weird mm -hmm. holdover, 
we've never had really good conversations about, hey, men are emotional beings. Exactly. There's a reason why they get into fights all the time. And it's not because they're super logical, right? <laughs> like they do dumb things because they're emotional driven beings. Yeah. Um, but we are recording before Christmas. Right. And I, and I hope to, you know, I'm going to rearrange some things because I kind of want to get it out this week because yeah. if we're talking oh, yeah. about Mary, I think it's it's really important. Right. In this kind of kind of flow of our conversation, you know, you wanted to kind of look at both the gender of God and then yes. the recognition of women in the, in the image of God, kind of just putting all those in, in together. How does Mary, right. this often oddly kind of forgotten character in right. evangelical spaces, particularly because of, I'm, this is me, but, you know, a reaction against Catholicism, a reaction okay. against, right. you know, Mariolatry and the like. Yeah. What what do we have to learn in this conversation? What do we have to learn through the person of Mary yeah. as a very big, broad question? No, that's a fantastic question. And I don't think I knew that that's the approach I was going to take until pretty late in my research. It was kind of a hmm. beautiful surprise uh, to me. Maybe I'll disclose a bit of that story. I think if you take these kind of big questions of what do we do with all this masculine imagery for God and how do we value women, one approach has been to focus on the maternal images for God. And I think there's a lot of good literature out there that does that. You know, God is spirit in Christian confession. So God, the Father is not embodied, the Spirit, Holy Spirit is not embodied. So they're not men up in the sky. Right. Uh, and so maybe we could attend to the metaphorical uses of God as the one who nurses and bears Israel and the mother hen. And again, I think there's excellent literature out there that does that. So I didn't want to reinvent the wheel with that. Yeah. Conversely, another approach could be going to those hot button Pauline texts and, uh, you know, all the instructions that he has yeah. that seem to say that women are silent in the whole egalitarian complementarian debate. I also had zero percent interest in <laughs> engaging in that <laughs> right. because that's the warp and wolf in so much of my daily conversation with students. And I love having that conversation with them. But my sense is the literature is saturated. And kind of like you were saying, like you decisions have been made. I cannot imagine someone adding something else that then everyone's going to be like, oh, well, we never thought about it that way before. Of right, course we right. Should. Now, in all, I need to be careful there because I think there is really good articulation. I use excellent books in my classes of scholars that have done the hard work. So I think that's really important for those who are investigating that question to read you know, from both sides of that spectrum. Right. And there's good literature out there. But I didn't think I had anything to contribute to that. Conversely, it seemed to me that the story of, of the incarnation, God becoming flesh, Jesus, the son, the eternal son coming for us, that really is, that's Christianity, right? That is what it is that he dies and is resurrected. It's him. Jesus is the center of our faith. And so what better place <laughs> to really press into these questions of gender than in the Annunciation, how God chose to come into the world. Because there you have the affirmation as God as father. Yeah. And why does Jesus call God father? Because there is an eternal relationship, absolutely affirm that. But that language is given is precise because that's given to us through the lens of the incarnation. 
Jesus calls God father and not mother because he already has a mother, <laughs> Mary. Mm, yeah. God is through the power of the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary causes the incarnation of the son. And so that's what we call fathers, those who cause the existence of a child. Huh. And so for me, pressing into that language, because it is so pervasive, I think sometimes women who, or and men too, who struggle with paternal language for God, usually because of a negative experience in their own life. And I want to respect that. Uh, I don't think you have to use this language, but we'll kind of then mix in some maternal imageries. But really when you read scripture, and especially when you read church history, this is not kind of an equal playing field. No. Like the paternal language just is explodes. And so I wanted to have an answer for that. Hmm. <laughs> like not to like that volume that we have in our faith. Could I press into that story and that language and even there find an affirmation for women? And that becomes important for me to say, given our previous conversation, I think when the full Imago Day of women is recovered and celebrated, that is good for men. I yeah. think this is a win-win. I am not, the, and there are feminists who want to swing the pendulum. Let's put down men so women can have the upper hand for a while. That is so short-sighted in my opinion, because the opinion will just swing back. Right. Um, but I really see when you actually elevate women to the place that God grants them, that is freeing for men. And so I have sections of the book in which I talk about the, the, the benefits of men really pressing into uh, the valuing of women in Christian tradition. Hmm. Um, yeah. They're, they're no longer held to a godlike standard. God is God. Right. God's got that. And then we all <laughs> men and women can be brothers and sisters serving together. And, and I think, you know, the, those power dynamics, right. When mm -hmm. we talk about kind of pushing one down, pulling one up, like, right. like when we, a lot of times people, struggle with the reality that just because oh, uh, maybe I'll put it this way at the table of Christianity, mm. because there's room for everyone pulling someone up to be a part of the table mm. doesn't inherently push someone down. But if you've been at the table yeah. for so long and now all of a sudden you've got to share, yes, you do yes. feel like you're losing mm. something, right? Wow. Because you're, wow. you're just stuck with this kind of notion of, Oh, there's something at the table that I didn't have mm. to, I didn't have to consider. I didn't have to, but we're both still at the table. Yes. And there's both still plenty to share, exactly. right? right. Um, mm. But I think a lot of a lot of men particularly struggle with that because it does feel like you're trying mm. to take my place versus to say mm. there's enough places for everyone. Yes, right. Yes. And we don't we don't not I don't want to say consider, but we it's hard to embody that mm. reality, right? Mm -hmm. No, that's so well said, and I, I think based on some feedback that I've gotten from the book. And, and it's been so wonderful just to hear people interacting with my ideas. What a gift that is to have a space to kind of put your thoughts out into the world. Uh, but I, I wonder if I've struck a nerve there a bit. Hmm. Um, yeah, In what I spend way? Some what time, do you... Well, yeah. I spent some time thinking about the embodiment of Jesus himself. I, I fully affirm that he is male. Uh, our New Testament accounts have no questions about that. Luke describes him as being circumcised and nobody kind of wonders. There's some literature that wrestles with the question of Jesus right. as intersex. I wanted to listen to that literature, but I ultimately found the arguments unconvincing. So I affirm that Jesus is male, but it seems to me that the doctrinal confession of virginal conception 
Joseph is not involved, right? Born of a virgin, that that actually has profound implications for the embodiment of the incarnate son. He's male, but where does he get his humanity from? From Mary. Now it's God miraculously working, but the human connection is with her and her alone. Yeah. And so there is this embodied embrace of male and female flesh in the body of our savior. And that seemed profoundly encouraging and inclusive. Yeah. Um, But I have wondered if in some conversations I've struck a nerve a bit because I'm seeking to remove the proximity that men might imagine they share with Jesus. Uh, Oh, Jesus Hmm. is male. I'm male. Yeah. uh, And I'm actually saying, yes, Jesus is male, but he's male like no other, not only because he's divine, but also because he is virginally conceived. And so that proximity that some men might assume that they have with Jesus that maybe their sisters don't have, I'm challenging that a bit. And that could be a bit unsettling. Not that it diminishes their participation in Christ, but it does invite someone else into that participation in an embodied way. Um, Yeah. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Two points, I think. One, just kind of more my kind of my own experience, right? I've got a mm. now almost 11 month old son oh. and um, he's wonderful. I love him to death. He was crying just a second ago because he just woke up. Right. But oh. um, so I don't know if that was on the podcast or not. If if so, you know, I'm sorry, everyone. But, Didn't hear it. No. <laughs> um, but there's something to be said that my wife's relationality to my son is so vastly different than mm. mine. Yes. And I don't pretend that that's not the case, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, my wife has described this feeling of of something being removed from her yes. in birth, right? Mm-hmm. And and some of this language mm-hmm. that probably I've heard before, but you know, it it means something different when it's Absolutely. your own experience, right? Yes. And to talk about this kind of transition me to the other point, to talk about that or to experience that reality actually create something even for me that I've struggled with for a while mm. an importance um, of the virgin birth mm. and I say I struggled with it only because you think about the list of doctrines even within the creed and you're like that one just seems so like you know I understand it I understand Augustine I understand why right. he would right you know because of this passing of sin through sex mm-hmm. and therefore you know, Jesus had to be born as a, and I'm like, that's so unconvincing. Like, I don't, right. I don't I see. Totally how, don't ascribe to that at right? all. <laughs> and so there's always been that kind of even point for me. I'm like, okay, well, if I don't, uh, you know, subscribe to that, then right. what, you know, what's the, what's the real kind of theological mm. push to the virgin birth? Yeah. And that's where I want you to kind of maybe explore that more, because even for me, it's fascinating to go, aha, wait a second, here's something that I've not really considered <laughs> This idea of this, I mean, yes, in, in our Eastern kind of reading, Eastern Orthodox and the Theotokos right. and understanding, yes. you know, Mary as the father of God and these kind of language that, again, is so, you know, 
grates on Western evangelicals so much like, oh, I don't like that language. Well, of course, because you don't really want to affirm that Mary had some special place in our history, right? right? So, so maybe walk down that path, like explain it to me like a dummy, because I am like, what, what, how does this work when you kind of talk about the virgin birth? How did you find in your writing this beauty of this thing Mm -hmm. that maybe hasn't been subscribed or ascribed to the virgin birth? Yes. And actually, Aaron, as you articulate that, maybe I have a better answer to one of your earlier questions. This is the center of this book. If my question is, how do we wrestle with paternal language, masculine language? How do we affirm women, the the, the like kernel of that or the, the, the center of the dynamite is that God took on flesh by being born of a woman? That's it. Huh. And basically yeah. every chapter is coming out of that center place. So I can give you a, a few things. Um, it was deeply striking to me the way in which Luke especially sets up the themes of holiness and Mary's body. He's the one that notes for us that she goes to the temple for the rites of purification. Kind of a little offhand comment. I think it's ultimately, or or at base, it's meant to show Joseph and she's faithfulness to the Jewish law. Like Jesus is not like letting go of Judaism to start this new thing, right? There's a consistency there. But I found myself reflecting and going back to Leviticus, women are impure at the time after birth. Um, That that doesn't mean that they're sinful, right? And the great work of people like uh, Milgram and Clawans on helping us understand impurity in Israel. But Mary would have been impure. She couldn't have gone to the temple before the days of her purification were over. But of course, and so many of the early theologians and poets, someone like Ephraim the Syrian has poems and poems and poems about this paradox that the holy God chooses to dwell within and in the arms of an impure woman. So in the moment in which she is impure and couldn't go to the temple, God doesn't break those rules and say, oh, Mary, come to the temple anyway. No, God like transgresses that boundary in the person of the son. And so while she is impure, she is holding the body of God, we would say, if we affirm the full divinity of the son, which I certainly would. So sorry, this just kind of like hit me, right? As you're talking and now I'm, again, I love this because it's making me kind of reconsider something. Because because in that in that kind of purity in those purity laws, right, the the touching of Jesus by right. Mary would yeah. actually make Jesus himself impure, right? Because she had not come to her purity yet. You know, there's a little bit of squishiness on that, and here's where maybe the the biblical studies uh, very chunky footnotes <laughs> take away <laughs> from the. You can just read the homiletical point in the prose, right. but. So there's a little bit, and there's really good scholarship on, is it she touching him or he touching her? I, I really uh, try to capture the nuance of that mm. because especially in that chapter, I really wanted to avoid a trap of kind of a Christian theology saying, oh, those Jews, they hated women and they said they were impure. And lo and behold, Jesus comes and gets rid of that whole system. I really wanted to avoid yeah. that because I believe in the coherence of our covenants and I want to respect uh, Judaism and my Jewish friends and colleagues, uh, but really because I want to show that God's co- consistent and doesn't right. like kind of change course. Uh, so there's a little bit more nuance there, but I think without question, 
the proximity, as you have recently experienced, of a newborn and his mother, <laughs> there's just a complete intermingling of all kinds of bodily fluids, which are exactly the things that bring about impurity. Yeah. And, and so that had, so the profound thing about the incarnation is that Jesus becomes human for us. Like any second grader who's raised in Sunday school can tell you that God becomes human. That's amazing. But to really press into God, the son being conceived from her flesh, from her body, God gestating in her womb, God passing through the birth canal. Right. And I teach a class with an art historian on Mary, and we talk a lot about human anatomy, not to for the shock value of it, but that is the scandal of the incarnation. Right. And then again, I love how you said it earlier. This is not my aim. This is not secretly a book on women in ministry. It is just because I have friends that I disagree on that question with, and I want to bring everyone to more awe of yeah. God's grace for us. That's the right. number one goal. But I do in that chapter reflect a bit <laughs> about the question of, well, who can handle the holy things of God now, namely the Eucharist? Hmm. And hmm. at least yeah. it some questions for right. that consideration. Um, maybe another answer of why the virginal conception, I've already alluded to it a bit, but it seems to me that because God chose to come in this way, we have to kind of say God could save us. However, right. God is God. There could be other right. ways. God chose human incarnation by being born of a woman. That's what God chose. So we reflect on what is given to us in so doing, you do have Christ, the male who who is born but born from her flesh it seems to me no more perfect way and i don't mean just because god did it and it's perfect but the logic of it to recapitulate i'll use some early church fathers language there recapitulate both men and women in the salvation yeah. story than having a male born of human of female flesh right alone now I need to affirm all within the mystery of God. We understand DNA. He's not a clone of Mary. God provides something, right? There's there's right. more. Right. But again, and the church fathers were adamant about this. She's not some kind of vessel through which like creation ex, ex nihilo, God creates a body for Jesus and then he zooms through Mary. Right. Firmly reject this and say, no, it is ek. We're again a from the virgin. Sorry, I mixed Greek and Latin there, but um, <laughs> uh, it is from the virgin uh, and it is from her flesh. So yeah. that to me, when we affirm that Jesus is the image of God, we're, we're always saying two things, both. He is the radiance of the glory of God, to use Hebrews 1 language, but also as the image of God, he is the template for humanity and so many of the fathers said god had in mind the incarnate son when god then formed adam and then eve and i think what a better picture yeah. than a male from human than female fresh then then you get yeah both male and female are in the image of god and so that now when i say the creed and my church people know this because i've preached about it a, a little bit Every time we get to, and by the power of the Holy Spirit became incarnate from the Virgin Mary, I just stand on the tips of my toes and almost want to do like a fist pump. <laughs> like every week, it doesn't get old. 
that affirmation that we proclaim in the creed. Right. So I hear you. Virginal conception, virginal birth is kind of like, oh, do we have to affirm that doctrine? It seems so silly and mythic. Um, oh my goodness. It is so wonderful. I, yeah. for me, that is the answer to a post-Christian feminist. Like our God became male, but he did so in this way. Right. And if I can say one more thing, because it's oh, really yeah. important. That might sound like I'm saying that women only matter because, or Mary only mattered because she's a womb, right? She can give birth or only mothers matter. Uh, that was a really important critique that I've had with friends and readers that I was able to address. It's striking to me that Mary, of all people in the New Testament who could just be focused on for her motherhood, is not. Right. She's also depicted giving prophetic speech in the Magnificat. Yes, right. She doesn't just give her body to Jesus, but she shapes him through teaching him in Luke 2, through influencing his ministry in John 2. And then she's there at Pentecost proclaiming uh, the gospel along yeah. with Peter and the others. Right. So she has these multiple ministries. And for me, that's a template of all faithful people, uh, we might be called to sacrifice our bodies and our time and our emotions and our vocations all for the sake of the gospel. Yeah. And she does that in multiple ways. I um, I just got the, the Pentecostal chills, you know, <laughs> and I can't tell if it's because it's literally 40 degrees in my office that has no heat. <laughs> I think it's what you just said, though. I think that's really, really important, right? Thinking about these things. This is this is where where the idea of and, and you know I, I'm thankful for you because it's kind of one of those those things I've read so much on the virgin birth and yet I'm like okay but really this this idea of the virgin birth actually provides much more nuance and beauty and purpose behind mm -hmm. that statement versus the you know the cultic expression of well virgin birth was was some kind of sign of divinity, however you right. want to define that, right? right? Like, okay, yeah. sure, maybe that's right. Like, it, it just kind of was uh, unnecessary to kind of think through those things, mm -hmm. at least in terms of a non-cultic expression. What is really interesting, I, you know, it's very interesting that it falls in this day, right? I, I just did a seminar. I teach a, a course on the personal work of Christ at London School of Theology. Oh, wonderful. And so we just did a seminar today. We were talking about atonement theories, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm and I'm always going back to that question: Why this way? Right, mm -hmm. trying to help students, especially when we're talking about the person of Christ. Mm -hmm. Why this way? Why not just forgiveness? Why not just God being like, "Hey, Adam and Eve, you screwed up, but don't worry about it." Right, like, <laughs> I forgive you. Don't do it again. Mm -hmm. Why this other way? And and mm -hmm. you know, Anselm and a few others they make these grandiose claims about God's holiness and so on and so forth, and it it requires some kind of payment, right? Mm -hmm. Which is language that has some biblical backing, but very select, right? Mm. I, I promise I have a point here. I'm just kind of almost recapping my own seminar. No, that's so, so what's interesting, I think, about this, again, with the virgin birth, actually mm. thinking it through pushes back against the stronghold of certain things like penal substitutionary atonement oh, interesting. and huh. ransom theory that, that, again, just says, well, it was just the cross or the resurrection, right? It was just the death or mm. Christus Victor in terms of, you know, this mm. high focus on the, the resurrection where we completely can just say, we don't even need Jesus' life mm. other than maybe we need some of his teachings and maybe we need, right. you know, an example, a good example. But really, all we really need from Jesus 
and 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 i've had students express that right like yeah. well all we really need was you know the main thing the main point of jesus right. was this was this death and i'm like that of course any theologian would really push back right i mean especially our ancient theologian they would push back right. pretty hard but somehow and 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 i'm not clear on my own connection here mm-hmm. But this idea of this virgin birth expressed the way that you have expressed it provides much more to this atonement theory of the life of -hmm. Jesus in community, born of a virgin, and all the things that that means for humanity that is often just kind of pushed to the side because, well, he died for our sins. Right, right. Uh, Okay, I don't... You know, yes, that's true. And, right, again, it's that kind of language. It doesn't have to be that we have to throw it out, but we have to recognize... It's really insufficient mm-hmm. to capture the work of God through the person of Christ within the virgin birth and yes. Mary's connection to Jesus throughout, right? Yeah. Wow. Sorry, that that's, was just a decompressing. No, that's me. so helpful. That makes me excited, like that there would be possibilities for exploring those connections further. Um, I have a very good friend, David Moffat, who writes in Hebrews, and David's work has been so beneficial to say to the church, ascension matters. <laughs> like, yeah. That the the son appearing before God, interceding for us. My understanding is David has a book coming out called Crucifixation, which is huh. just this like, hey, yeah. if we only focus on the cross, there's so much lost. I had the privilege of sitting in on one of his seminars at my sabbatical, and he was just extolling the benefits of really integrating ascension into our theology. And so often in class, and I I would say to David, and the incarnation, not that he would deny it, but I kind of was able to <laughs> right. see what he's doing on that end, maybe I'm doing on the front end of yeah. um the the yeah, the reconstitution of full humanity in the sun really begins at the moment of conception that March 25th, the feast of the annunciation has become a vitally important day in my faith. That's when salvation starts is on that day that we're in the church celebrates Mary's yes to Gabriel. And then of course it has to play out in dealing with the problem. But if you flatten humanity to only our sins, all you need is a cross. But if humans are right. robust, full body, meant for flourishing life, well, you need then the whole life of a savior uh, and not right. just that moment. So, you know, that's yeah. really helpful. That could be fun to explore. Hmm. Yeah. I, I, again, another reason why I need to now be done with my break and go ahead and start reading again <laughs> uh, and pick up your book ASAP. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm assuming this is my assumption but I'm assuming there are those who have probably pushed back because no, 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 the Bible's clear. God is male, right? Oh, yeah. And and so, and where do you go here, especially when you're, you know, you, you talked a while ago about, you know, this non-gendered reality of God, but why is, almost putting these two conversations together, right? Yeah. Why is it so important to affirm that to mm. then be able to highlight the the masculinity the heinous of mm. jesus right without losing the image of god within within women does that make sense in my I, train of thought there i think so so sometimes the move is made and understandably so in theology right like if if the son is our is the reflection of the father 
and the son is male. Well, doesn't that mean that there's some kind of maleness in the father then, if there is this unity? I actually have my, uh, I have PhD students. I started taking PhD students three years ago, and my first student is working on just this question, <laughs> the maleness of Christ hmm. and what that says about Trinitarian reality. And she's just very, very wonderful. I can't wait to see what she does with that. So it makes sense that there's that kind of assumption. I mean, any theologian would say, and this has been true in responses to my book, nobody except for like kind of inane comments on Facebooks, you know, like anyone who's actually thinking has not said, oh, God is male. <laughs> um, I have been surprised the degree to which the frequency of that kind of thoughtless comment has come. I, I didn't think anybody would say that at all, but it has happened, but no one who's actually mm. really engaged. Um, so no one really affirms that. But Jesus's maleness, I think we have to really press into the particularities of the incarnation. In what way does the son disclose God and not? And that that's hard work to do. So if your question was that kind of link, the way that I press into that is first, I really do come at this sexualization of the Annunciation that you mentioned a little bit, kind of like the gods, the demigods, the rape of Zeus's rape of right. any number of women. And maybe many would say, well, Christians shouldn't have to deal with that. But it was really important for me to establish as firmly as possible. Christians really mean that God the Father is not male. And I think Matthew and Luke do a lot of work to show that the Annunciation is not a sexualized event, because in their context, that would have been an immediate association. And they do that. Yeah. So I start there. Interesting. Right. And then I kind of take up maybe a more challenging question. I also make the assertion that God and I mean, God, the father in this instance is not masculine. And this is where I think things get a little slippery. It's not that theologians will say God is male, but often there is an assumption right. that men right. are more like God than women. God is an initiator. God is creator, gets things going. God is sovereign. And we go back to that kind of Aristotelian logic of logic and emotion, like men are on top, right. men are better. And I don't think that's ever at the forefront of people's thinking, but I try to trace how it's quite prevalent in all of the major traditions as an assumption that God is more masculine than feminine. And I try to show that the incarnation actually says God is God and humans are not. And we don't need to ca call the creator creation divide masculine and feminine. That, that's to no mm, one's benefit. Right. It's neither necessary. And some people say, oh, you know, these are just kind of concepts that are artistic. Um, that's fine. If, if it works for you, I wouldn't take that away from you. But I don't think it's biblically necessary. And I think it's deeply problematic. And so yeah. that's where I get into, that's the ter terrain that I thought people would press back on. Um, interestingly, there's been kind of more, I think the most substantive uh, critique, which was very gracious, really a wonderful interchange, really got to more headship issues and kind of Jesus as representative male. And I think that's more within the Pauline literature. When I first submitted yeah. the manuscript of this book, I had four more chapters that deals with Paul's thoughts about <laughs> the incarnation. I ended up pulling those because they were not firmly developed and decided that I'll have a second volume. So I've already been working on that. So I'll kind of take up Paul's read of um, Christ being born and taking on flesh in another volume. Hmm. So, Yeah. 
Oh gosh, I, sorry. Sometimes I have so many questions. I'm like, all right, I, I need to narrow myself because uh, I've been that terrible host. I've been like, I've got three questions. Here they are. Yeah, <laughs> all at fine, once. fine. Um, what is so problematic? Mm-hmm. And and I say this with you know coming with my own loaded answers to this, but sure. I want to hear your answers. Sure. Right. What is well? Actually, I want to start with this. It's really interesting you say that because I stole this exercise from someone else and I couldn't even tell you, unfortunately, who it was. But, but very often in my introduction to theology courses, I would you know, have students just say, list out a bunch of characteristics or what you think is the nature of God, and I'm going to write it down on the board. And we just kind of start writing them down. And often it's loving and kind and compassionate and caring in, in these kind of terms. Um, and there sometimes can be the wrath or the jealous, but it's actually very kind of few and far between. Um, and then I just kind of put them on the board and I say, now, honestly, does that sound more like a mother or a father? Interesting. Yes. And, right. And more often than not, you know, you get that, oh, yeah, those characters are what I would, you know, ascribe more to the the females in my life than the males. And of course, that starts and of course that was had to go into that i'm not saying one or the other right that's exactly the problem but trying to show that some of these kind of terms have been problematic to talk about god as masculine because actually when we describe the character nature of god it often comes off much more feminine than we would want uh i say we would want but you know what i'm saying oh totally yeah right so my question then that I want to hear you kind of pontificate mm-hmm. on is what is so problematic mm-hmm. with God being masculine yeah, or being described within the masculine? Sure, sure. Um, well, I think on one hand, that is that becomes a backdoor toward practices that give men power. And again, I think that can be quite a burden to men. I've got to live up to these standards or it kind of goes to their head and they misuse their power. So it becomes a backdoor toward the elevation of men and the the devaluing of women. Because if God is masculine, then we kind of, you know, men get the upper hand. So I think it can lead to damaging anthropological outcomes for both men and women. And I want to be careful here. I don't just have in mind those places where only men can be in leadership. Like, clearly, I have a position on this. I think women can be called to any task. But I also respect the agency, the exegetical convictions of those who say, no, I really believe that men can be in leadership. And that includes many women that I know who say, I find this really empowering. So I really think those kind of issues of praxis, there is a big tent. Both positions can be fruitful. Both can be exegetically plausible. So I don't mean that. But I mean those uh, misapplications in which really women are disrespected and men are elevated Mm. and given more power than is beneficial. And I think that is a backdoor to that. But much more... Well, let me say it this way. Again, I said earlier, anthropology has a theological base. I think much more damning is then if you assume that God is masculine, you basically are demoting God to a creature. Mm, Uh, You are taking away from the transcendence of God. And I think that can play out in some really, so I'll take up this issue of initiation. And I think this is probably one of the more controversial parts of the book, or at least it was one of the hardest to write. But 
initiation is definitely what God does as creator, as redeemer, like God gets everything started. Like we humans are, we're not possible for us and God moves in these ways. But to call that masculine, I really started contemplating in what way is it that initiation has to be masculine? And I don't think it ever has to be like, maybe some say that's the best, but that's not Christians don't agree on that. Um, but there, it doesn't have to be located in the masculine. And I think that actually could lead down a path of saying, um, God ends up forcing God's self on Mary. I mean, you get some really ugly pictures if you say that initiation has to be a masculine act. I think you get in some really dangerous places. So it detracts from the, the infinite qualitative divide between humanity and God. When we say that God is more yeah. this than other one, one commentator said, or one like a uh, conversation I had said, shouldn't you don't mean that God is genderless. You mean that God kind of encompasses all the aspects of masculine and feminine. Like, Oh yeah, I can see that. I, I think that might be a better way of yeah. putting it. But the, the concern in the book was to dislodge that preference for masculinity that has been so prominent yeah. in, in certain spaces. Yeah. It's, it's that, I guess theological problem, you know, we even talk about something like, again, just because it was on top of mind, this this idea that God is so worthy that God can't take, uh, he, he must demand payment in order mm-hmm. for his worthiness to be kind of lived up to in order for forgiveness, right? Which Which is that highly problematic thing where we take a term, we define it by the best we can understand mm-hmm. the term to be within our anthropological realm, uh-huh. and then we say, well, then that must be God. Right. Not right. allowing for that other thing to be, well, yes. whatever God does is worthy. Yes. yes. And, and and we we kind of, you know, again, we, we, we ascribe things to God rather than letting God define mm-hmm. things right. for us to understand. Yes. Um, yes. And I think so much of that is this case, right? Mm-hmm. Where so many times we take qualities that we, uh, well, that guy, he initiates a lot. So, you know, if God's initiator, that connects this way, right? We, we do it from below. And I think theology from below isn't necessarily bad. I mean, I, I did a lot of work with Tillich and I like yeah. a lot of Tillich's work. Yes. So I'm, I'm yeah. good with theology from below, but I do think it's problematic when we try to define terms mm-hmm. in this way without yeah. any kind of uh, apophatic approach to recognize that those terms are very limited. Right. Right. And I think something about this mm-hmm. encompassing or whatever there is in terms of gendered characteristics mm-hmm. only exist because God is God yes. and we have them because God is God Yes. Oh, versus right the other way around where we go, well, if I put men and women together, then we'll get all the characteristics of God because they clearly have different ones. Well, that, that makes zero no. sense. Right? Exactly. Exactly. And I love the way you've said that because that really, I'm also just a firm, I just hate gender stereotypes. Uh, me <laughs> I too. Yeah. just think they're not helpful in any space ever. And the, saying, you know, God has all of the qualities, all of the virtues, right? All of the um, beatitudes. And then humans in the image of God manifest those in this beautiful spectrum, depending on the individual, uh, not just in these kind of boxes. Yeah. So I think that's incredibly helpful. It's a really... Uh again, personalized experiential um, uh, statement on this anecdote, so to speak. You know, I think about that initiator, right? Like I I tried to initiate with my wife 
long time ago and fell flat on my face like said hi she didn't even <laughs> know so i existed right like that kind of thing uh-huh. and and then there was a time where actually she initiated mm. i don't even remember, 10 years later something of that yeah. and and what i think maybe this is just for some christian listeners who are female to recognize <laughs> like that if we actually ascribe that to just men, then of course there's always something wrong with, well, a guy has to initiate in terms of relationship, right? And this is an anecdotal, and I don't want to call it dumb, but so earthy example because there's so many, even women who are laden with, well, I can't do that because that's not a female thing to do, right? That's that, the guy must initiate. Mm. Well, it, it's it's odd to say, but something so lofty in these conversations, mm-hmm. like what we're talking about, right. play out so intricately in yes. human right. relational dynamics that we don't recognize sometimes that the gendered way we talk about God even impacts something as right off the wall as who's going to say hey first, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, yes. oh my goodness, or yeah. allow, or who can say hey first? Mm. We'll put it that way, right? Right. And and I think that's the hard work that some people don't get Mm. uh, in terms of these conversations. Like, why are we having this conversation again? Well, actually, we don't realize how pervasive every part of life is. And then the second thing to that is just because um, uh, in terms of like, let's say leadership, right? Just because we're saying that women can lead, again, to go back to this point, to drive it home again, right. just because we can say women can lead doesn't then mean that men cannot. Precisely. Right? Precisely. Yeah. Or yeah. just because women can initiate does not mean that men cannot. Like exactly. there's room for both to have that quality. And it's and it's a good thing because yes. they're both made in the image of God. And this is who God is, right? Yeah. A leader and initiator. Yeah. How do we want to use those words, right? Right. Wow. That's, that's really well said. Yeah. Often ideas can be kind of calcified, but then get complicated in relationship. (laughs) And I think this is often how it plays out actually in the New Testament. My own conviction is that Paul would get a little bit frustrated with all of kind of modern evangelical fights on these things and be like, just get out and preach the gospel. Like, just do the work. <laughs> right. Like, just stop. Right. And, you know, just, and that's kind of like a marriage too. Like when you're dating, you might have these who needs to do. And then like you live life and you're like, well, somebody's got to go get the, you know, rice for dinner. Cause we were, you know, it just, it just right. becomes real and practical and that our God became human and was real and practical and lived life and had a real family. It's not just highfalutin theology it really, he really is exemplar for us in these very practical things. Amen. Well, I want to be respectful of your time as much as I've could probably ask a thousand other questions that I've written down here. Um, But uh, I want to encourage everyone to go. I'm assuming wherever books are sold, that's right. Your preferred place um, you like Erdman's to send people. Is a great, if you go to the Erdman site, you can read a nice little summary. And but it is anywhere books are sold. Women in the gender of God. So would love to hear people's thoughts. This is um, it's a heart project, and uh, hope that it's uh, for the glory of God and for the blessing of readers. That's my hope. And encouraging people to go buy the book, me included. Um, how um, can people connect with you? So they read it, they want to they connect. What's the best way? You know, sure. Twitter, 
whatever. Yeah, I'm on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, and I'm very easily accessible by email, amy.peeler at wheaton.edu. Um, I've had a number of people reach out and I love hearing stories and happy to answer questions. So I have kind of an open door office hour policy. I will extend that to readers as well. <laughs> <laughs> but you actually have to read it. No listening to this and then being like upset and then being like, I'm going to just, you know, no, you have to read it. That's the one, right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, that's true. Real engagement is is helpful. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Amy, thank you so much. It's been wonderful. Um, I, I really enjoyed it. And I hope that we get to have you back sometime in the future. I'd love to. Thank you so much, Aaron.